passage is on verses 6 through 10, uh, but here's how we're going to do it, okay? We're going to go through it like this. Last week, Jude gave an example of God's judgment on the Israelites. You remember this, right? As they were going through the wilderness. Uh, the, the next sentence, though, includes two more examples of God's judgment that we know a lot less about, but that are very interesting. Um, he uses these examples of God's judgment to show that the fake Christians that he mentioned in verse 4 are very similar in their attitude. And he, he describes both uh, those who've been judged and those who will be judged. Okay? And, and then he mentions three specific sins that these wicked people do that should cause us to examine our own hearts. And then as kind of a, a finishing thought, Jude fleshes out the third of those sins. So, um, so it's going to get heavy. Okay, so uh, we're going to follow this format this morning, see if we can get a clearer understanding of the enemies of God, and this should help us to better discern, uh, really, and, and identify ungodly behavior, but not just so that we can avoid those who engage in this unrepentantly, but also so we can identify it in ourselves, so that we can see if, if there's the influence of these behaviors in our own hearts and lives, Okay. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Uh, Father God, I just want to ask in Jesus' name that all of us will be good soil. As always, Lord, let the word take root and bear fruit. And I pray, Father, that you help us to recognize the importance of connecting with you. I thank you that, that here we are today and that we're studying your word. But I, I ask, Father, that, um, that we don't leave here today unchanged. God, your word is, uh, is mighty and powerful, and, and it is... Um, Beyond all compare, there's, there's nothing else that we have that has the nuggets of wisdom that is so, so full throughout of goodness as your word. But God, there are parts that we're going to look at even today that are, they are good because they are righteous and just, but they are also terrifying. And I pray, Father, that you help us to see um, that, that the, other, the other part, Lord, of what you do for us you save, but you also, Lord, you also condemn those who refuse to accept salvation. Give us wisdom to recognize that today, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up in verse 6, where Jude is continuing this train of thought from verse 5. Um, there's an on switch, isn't there? Sure is. Okay. All right. It does, yes. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, right off the bat, we got one of those what exactly is he referring to texts, okay? Because these two references, uh, one being fallen angels and the other being Sodom and Gomorrah, are very interesting choices, right? Now, the, the former is, is less specific. It's more open to interpretation, I think, while the latter is relating to a very particular story that is spelled out very clearly in Genesis 19, all right? So we're going to take a look at both stories. In the first case... Uh, Jude refers to some angels 
that are under God's judgment. And the obvious question that we might want to ask is, what are they doing? Why are there chains and, and gloomy darkness? Why are they being held in this place or this thing? There's at least two main perspectives on this, and one of them is, is that these angels were the beings that referred to in, uh, in Genesis 10 as the, the sons of God who made babies uh, with the daughters of men that produced the Nephilim. Now, that it's possible, I guess, that that's the case, but it sure seems to me as though the, the better uh, explanation is with reference to the angels who rebelled against the Lord and who fell from heaven, okay? And while we have, we have very little in Scripture with regard to, to how Satan went from being an angel of light uh, to being you know, his, his current status as the accuser of mankind, uh, but we're given a lot of hints, right? Like Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You know, there's another place uh, where the book of Revelation refers to, to this dragon that sweeps two-thirds of the stars out of the sky with his tail, and, and they follow him in his rebellion. But perhaps the best references are found kind of hidden, semi-hidden, I guess we could say, within the Old Testament prophets. And, and, and on the surface, they are aimed toward contemporary kings that were, that were during the time that these prophets wrote. But there are allusions to the devil himself. You know, Ezekiel 28 says... You were in Eden. It says, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. This is interesting because it fits the biblical record of God's creation being entirely good at the beginning. Uh, continuing, in your abundance... The abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And then skipping ahead, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. And then we see a continuation of this theme in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. That's where we get the, the name Lucifer. It's not actually in the Bible. Um, but this is where that comes from, is the word uh, day star. Son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, now y'all listen, count the I wills, okay? I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend Above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. You know, based on these descriptions, it seems clear that Satan's, Satan's great sin, the sin that led to his downfall, was the sin of pride. And if Jude was referring to this, it, it would make sense. It would fall in line very well with the other examples and the other descriptions that he gives of these, these fake Christians. So, so I'm, I'm fairly convinced uh, that Satan and the other angels' rebellion is what Jude was talking about here. But in either case, the punishment that he's describing is a result of, of their disobedience against God and of the presumption of what he had uh, decreed for them. So, so the next question, the next question that you might wonder 
this is just a real quick question, are, are the chains literal? And which is kind of funny, because you know, you'd have to mean in the spiritual sense, because they don't have physical bodies. But are they literal in the spiritual sense, which is reality beyond the physical realm, or is it metaphorical? Is he referring to the fact that they've been irredeemably placed under God's judgment? And not necessarily saying they're currently captives in some sort of dungeon. My answer to that question is, I don't know. And that's okay. All right? You don't have to know. I think it's likely, though, that it's a, a metaphorical case here, unless, unless it's referring to specific fallen angels as opposed to all of them. Because if you look around, it's very clear from this world that Satan is alive and well. That he's very, very active. Because otherwise, you know, demons, demons wouldn't be active in the world if they were all in chains. So, so it's really difficult to understand this as fully as we'd like, because this story, really, it's, it's a reference. It's only mentioned one other time in Scripture that we know of, at least that I know of. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but it's in 2 Peter, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's actually almost verbatim, the way that it's listed in 2 Peter. So um, anyway, the second example, though, in today's text, it has a lot more clarity in the biblical record, all right? This is a story of, in Genesis 19 story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to spend a few minutes in that passage. And it's pretty long, and a lot of it is not exactly kid-friendly, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, but we need to get the gist, especially those who've never read it. So let me set this up for you really quickly, okay? Abraham's nephew Lot has moved into a really rough part of town. Okay, this is when, when Abraham is still kind of traveling. He's, he's still Abram at this point. Um, and so his nephew Lot, they have so much stuff, they're like, you know what, let's split up and go our separate ways so our, our herdsmen can stop fighting with each other. So Lot goes to this beautiful part of, of the land, but it was a rough neighborhood, okay? Because even though the land itself was great, it was great for the livestock and all that stuff, the people that lived in these cities were extremely brutish and wicked, okay? God was planning on destroying them, we find out. So let's pick up in uh, verse 1 of Genesis 19. The two angels, if, if you're expecting it to be up here, it won't be till the very end, so open your Bible. Um, Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise up early and go on your way. You think maybe he knew? what kind of town these guys were coming into. They said, no, nah, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That is a euphemism for what you think. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. But they said, stand back. I'm skipping ahead here for obvious reasons. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Skipping ahead. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house, and with them shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore, listen to this, they wore themselves out groping for the door. They didn't go, whoa, we're blind all of a sudden. Maybe we're making a bad decision. They kept trying to get in the house. 
Then the men, that's the angels, said to Lot, We are about to destroy this place, skipping down, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. A little further down, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So I love this. So the men, they didn't go, oh, come on. No, they seized him and his wife and his two daughters. You think God isn't in charge of salvation? He seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Skip forward just a little more. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Whoa. I want you guys to bear in mind here, this is pretty serious, okay? This is not myth. This is not metaphor. This is something that literally happened. God's hint of judgment on wickedness. Now, we got to remember just a few chapters earlier, God has drowned every human being on earth except for eight people. And the reason he did that, it says, was because the inclinations of every man's heart were always evil all the time. Only evil, excuse me, all the time. That's still pretty intense. It's pretty rare in the scriptures for God to rain down fire from the sky to wipe out entire cities. In fact, I only think of a few other times he did that, and it was never for whole cities. And why did God do this? Jude explains it pretty clearly, okay? He mentions sexual immorality. Now, biblically, this means anything outside of a marriage relationship. We already know that. We've talked about that many, many times, okay? By far the more interesting, I think, phrase that he uses is strange flesh or other flesh. What is it that Jude is referring to here? You know, some, some people believe that he's talking about the men in the town that they wanted to be intimate with the angels, but there are several reasons to believe that's not what he's talking about. One of the commentators I read, uh, he, he gave five reasons, and I'm just summarizing them very quickly. First of all, the ancient Jews and the early Christians didn't interpret it that way, so why would we, Okay. Secondly, why would Jude warn Christians against a behavior they'll never be tempted toward? We don't normally run into angels, okay? Thirdly, angels are spirit beings, so to call them other or strange flesh, sarks, would be a weird choice, okay? Fourth, there's no evidence that the men of Sodom knew the men were angels. And fifth, the other cities nearby were said to be guilty of the same sin as Sodom and Gomorrah. They received the same punishment, even though they were not present for this particular event. So it seems clear that Jude is referring to homosexuality when he refers to strange flesh. Now the practice of homosexuality is openly condemned in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament. 
in the New Testament too. You know, I, I like to, to, to discuss with people, sometimes they'll give the argument, well, that's in the Old Testament where it says not to, a man shouldn't lie with another man. And, and that's an abomination. Well, so is eating shellfish. You say, okay, but shellfish is canceled in the book of Mark where Jesus declares everything clean to eat. And we're not Jewish anymore. But you know what? The Bible is also very clear in the New Testament that homosexual practice is a sin. And we'll get to that. So bear with me, okay? The desire to be intimate with a member of the same sex is not part of the original creation. That is a sinful result of the fall. But it's also something that goes against nature itself, okay? And if you don't believe this is the case, because many people don't, you know, they make arguments about, well, what about gay animals and things like that? Listen, just, just please bear in mind what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, okay? After giving a lengthy, a, a really, really intense expose of, of the, the downward spiral of depravity in people that have rejected God, this is what he says. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. He doesn't stop there. He says, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Is there any ambiguity here? I don't think so. I think this is very, very clear. There's certainly quite a bit more that can be said about the subject. A society, society is currently trying to justify it and, and act as though it's acceptable. That in itself is not really surprising, okay? But the fact that many within the professing church have begun rationalizing the acceptance of this sin and other sins, to me that reveals there's a deeper issue here, okay? Because listen, guys, sin is sinful, but attempts to justify the practice of sin, that might be even worse because they are actually a symptom of an even larger problem, and that is rebellion. Look at the title. Well, you can't because it's not on there. The Incredible Arrogance of Rebellion. We're going to see how Jude ties these things together in a moment. Um, and also, I want to tell you, like, sometimes it's tempting because... You know, that's a particular sin that most of us in this room probably don't struggle with. So you might want to pump your fist and go, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, talk about those guys. Listen, we're all messed up. We are all sinful beings, every one of us. And we need humility. But we also need to recognize that calling a sin not a sin is a terrible thing. So if you're committing adultery and you're saying, ah, it's not a big deal. No, that is a big deal. You are pulling down condemnation on yourself. If you say, you know, gossip's not really that big of a deal. That is a big deal. Okay? But because I have not seen a church specifically set aside for gossips or a church specifically set aside for adulterers, but there are gay churches, I think that's part of the reason that we have to have this discussion. We have to speak on this particular topic. Because people are trying to say that it's not a sin, and it very, very clearly is. Anyway, I'd like to share two possible ways to interpret that part of verse 7, where it says that Sodom and Gomorrah are undergoing, present tense, the punishment of eternal fire. 
Now, some people uh, believe it's referring to the actual geographic location of the original towns. And that's, that was apparently, it was built over, um, I can't remember what they actually called, uh, bitumen is one of the names, B-I-T-U-M-E-N, bitumen is one of the names, but it's, it's basically asphalt. This, this, these towns were built over an underground asphalt pit, and, they, and God apparently set it on fire from heaven. And so this may sound a bit far-fetched because you say, well, how could it still be burning by the time Jude wrote that? Listen, there was a secular author, a guy named Philo, who, uh, who, not Fido, okay, Philo, he lived around the same time as Jude, and he recorded in the first century that this area was actually still on fire. So that's plausible, okay? The other theory is it's referring to the inhabitants of those cities who are already experiencing torment in hell or in Hades. Now, to be frank, I've never heard of the first theory until I started reading the commentaries on this passage. Um, and it is plausible. I probably lean toward the second. Frankly, it could be both. It could be. Whatever the case, um, God made an example of Sodom and Gomorrah. He made them poster children for his judgment on the unrepentant sinner. All right, let's pick up on verse 8. Um, I think I've got to put some more question marks up there because I don't know. <laughs> but I think, okay, so um, we're going to pick up at verse 8. After referring to the wickedness and the villainy of both men and angels, Jude writes, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, th this is a, a powerful statement of godly discernment. Okay, I want you to first notice, notice the phrase, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. Now, that, that's a mouthful because really the Greek basically has three words for all that, okay? The Greek says, likewise, those dreaming, all right? So what Jude is talking about here, this is not meant in a flattering way. You know, like we talk about, oh, those dreamers, you know, I, I think um, instead he, he's demonstrating the prideful arrogance of these people. Um, I know, like when we hear the word dreaming, you know, we think of like, oh, that person, they're a big dreamer, they're a visionary, right? Like we have kind of a, a positive connotation. But based on God's condemnation of false prophets as dreamers, I want us to rethink that for the sake of this message, okay? People who dream, listen, because you know this, most of us probably had a dream this morning or, or something before we woke up. In, what a dream is, is your mind declaring its own reality. You with me? Your mind is declaring its own reality. So people who dream invent reality for themselves. And it seems that our society today is also full of prideful and self-delusional people that are trying to determine their own reality. You know, I want you to think on that for a minute. A minute. We'll come back to it. Uh, as it is, I don't know if I'm keeping up here. Let me see. I'm not. Sorry, I get lost here. Uh, as it is, Jude gives us three descriptors of those dreaming. For you bingo people, I'm going to leave that up just for another few seconds. Check it out. Find the harp. Oops. First, they defile the flesh. They defile the flesh. Remember the example he uses here is Sodom and Gomorrah. 
meaning he is specifically referring to sexual sin and especially unnatural sexual immorality, which in Genesis 19 included both homosexuality and rape. Church, please make no mistake. Perverse sexual practice is wickedness. The Bible is exceedingly clear about this. Now, I want to say this plainly. Even in the case of two consenting adults, sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship is sinful. And I'd like to share with you one of the passages. This, this ought to rekindle the fear of God in anybody who, who is, is disobedient to this. Okay, this is Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. Listen to that line. I'm going to say that again. Do not be deceived. So if you believe other than this, what are you? Okay, thank you. Neither the sexually immoral, that's referring to all types of sexual immorality, okay? nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, Paul uses two different words for homosexual here. One of them means, uh, it's, it's arsenokoitai in Greek. It means men who burn with lust for other men. And then the other literally means soft or effeminate. I think that's interesting, okay? Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. I think of those people that message me every time I post something on Facebook. Oh, send me your social security number. Whatever. Um, you know, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Did you, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Okay, good. In a list of sins, a list of sins that, that, re, that, that prevent people from inheriting the kingdom, fully 40% of them are sexual in nature. This should terrify those professing Christians that are living in sinful sexual relationships, not to mention the other folks on this list that are you know, engaging in wicked and harmful deeds. But y'all, amidst all this terrible news, see, this is, this is where we're going here. You're like, Mark, why are you beating us up so hard? Listen, there is some really good news. There's some really good news in all this, okay? Did you know that these ungodly desires can be resisted? Did you know that? Did you? Does the world know? We need to tell them. We need to tell them. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 1 says, And such were some of you. Now I want you to just, just pause a second. What is the implication of the word were in that phrase? Past tense. And such were some of you. Paul is saying, you used to be these things, but you aren't anymore. And then he continues, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, this is some serious good news. Because of the, what Jesus did. We, we've talked about this every time I'm in the pulpit, pretty much. But what Jesus did on the cross Dying for our sins. 
giving his life for us so that we could be forgiven. And, then, and then, then rising from the dead in doing this, the Lord Jesus Christ made it possible for us to be fully washed clean of our sin, completely. And that means we're, we're completely forgiven of it as though it never happened. And then on top of this, Christ's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that lives in believers, he sanctifies us. That means that he, that he, he makes us more like Christ he places us on a trajectory that, that rejects sin and strives toward righteousness. That, that's what God is doing in us. While this process is happening, we, we are experiencing the fruit of faith being, being credited to us as righteousness. You know, that's very Romans 3 and 4. That, that's what justification is. So, so thanks to all of this, through the blood of Jesus, listen, guys, through the blood of Jesus, we are freed not only from sin's penalty, but also from its power. We are free from the dominion of sin in our lives. We no longer have to be addicted. We no longer have to give in. Of course, this is an unnecessarily controversial topic for those who don't understand what the Holy Spirit can do for believers. You know, particularly with sexual sins, people don't want to believe that a person's predilections can change. They'll ask, what? How is that even possible? You know, aren't we born with our desires? You know, maybe some people are, but that doesn't refute the fact that our desires can change. There's a woman named Rosario, uh, Rosaria Butterfield. You may or may not have heard of her. She has become uh, kind of a hot topic in certain circles because she used to be uh, an English professor in a university that taught queer theory. She was in a lesbian relationship and had been for decades, okay? She came to Christ. She's now married with several children of her own. This is a woman who recognized, it was 1999, she was convicted of sin, and God changed her desires. It's not a myth. It happens. Rosaria Butterfield was washed she was sanctified. She was justified. And you can be too. So can I. We don't have to commit these sins. But others in the church have said, so, so what if we do have desires that contradict Scripture? Isn't it okay to have them as long as we don't give in to them? Well, not really. Here's where we're going to get into the weeds a little bit. If I want to commit murder but choose not to, is that desire Okay. Of course not. It's a sinful desire. And the desires that lead to these behaviors that Paul mentioned before, those are sinful desires because they push us towards sin. I know, I know this is not a really popular point of view because a lot of Christians think that sin is only in the action, okay, and not in the unfulfilled desire. But isn't that exactly what the 10th commandment is about? You know, when we're told not to covet, isn't the precise definition of coveting, wanting something that's not yours to have, and thus having desires that are in violation of God's law? Thank you. How can the church not see that desiring to change one's own biological sex is covetous? It's placing one's own feelings and desires as the dominant force of reality. It's dreaming. It's dreaming. What about uh, 
think I skipped a page, sorry. What about the next one? It says uh, they reject authority. They reject authority. <clears throat> Ultimately, what does that boil down to? They reject God. Oh, good job. I'm going to get specific. To reject means to refuse or deny. Authority means power and prerogative. So who or what is the ultimate authority over all things? Obviously, it's God, right? So when Jude talks about, when he says they reject authority, he's talking about rebellion against God. And we're going to take a look here at another Old Testament story. <clears throat> this one is from 1 Samuel 15. Now, this is a pretty long read, so I'm not going to do that. I'm just summing up like the first 20 or so verses real quick and kind of a short thing here. God sent the prophet Samuel. He went to go tell King Saul, wipe out the wicked Amalekite people and everything they have, including their livestock, okay? So Saul goes, and he wipes out most of them, but he spares their king, a guy named Agag, terrible name, and, uh, and he, he spares the best of their, their animals instead of obeying the Lord. Then long story short, Samuel shows up. Saul says, hey, I did what you told me. Samuel says, nah, you didn't. And then Saul tries to rationalize that he saved the best of the livestock to sacrifice to the Lord. But Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? That is a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen or to heed better than the fat of rams. God wants our obedience more than he wants our so-called sacrifices. He, he doesn't need our stuff. He wants our hearts. Okay? For rebellion is as the sin of divination, that's witchcraft, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. He goes on to say, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, presumption... Excuse me. It means to presume on someone else. It's, it's like to say, oh, God won't mind if I directly disobey him because I have good intentions. That's presumption. Okay? That is a terrible idea, and God hates it. Right now, we, we can't see what's inside a person's heart, but we can see how they act. And one very good way to know if someone or, or if you yourself are in rebellion against God is, is do they live in rebellion in general? Ouch. Do they live in rebellion in general? A person, a person who doesn't like to submit to authority in general will have a hard time submitting to God. And rebellion produces rotten fruit. A kid who talks back to his parents or disobeys them will soon receive punishment from the Lord if their parents don't do what they're supposed to and discipline them. Teens who disrespect their teachers will reap what they sow. Men who don't respond how the officer tells them to respond may get shot. The Lord has appointed hierarchy and authority in the family, in society, and in the church for a reason. It's to promote order rather than chaos. Now, when the authority is operating rightly within its God-given capacity, which I believe is what Romans 13 is referring to, listen, rebellion hurts. To rebel against God's created order and his moral imperative hurts. 
just consider. We're going to keep reading. Um, Jude says that these dreaming people blaspheme the glorious ones. Blasphemy is something we don't hear a whole lot about in the Bible unless somebody's being accused of it, right? Like, usually it's the Pharisees getting onto somebody saying that they're blaspheming or whatever. Um, so basically, to blaspheme means to use your mouth to insult or denigrate someone, especially God, okay? So these false believers that Jude, he, he's saying these guys have infiltrated the church, they are speaking evil against God and against the angelic powers that exist in the heavenly places. Now, some do this as a matter of habit. You know, they have no belief in the, in the, the spirit world and because of, of their dreaming, they've deluded themselves into believing that, that they are the ultimate authority, right? Because if there is no God, who is God? Right? That's what people seem to think. Many celebrities mock God through their speech and their lifestyles, but there are further taboos being broken. There was a, there was a young rapper named Little Nass, I don't know if it's short for nasty, um, who recently proclaimed to be homosexual. He made a video where he goes to hell and dances suggestively for the devil. Now, side note, we need to pray for his soul, okay? I mean this, not by his albums, all right? But these are the kinds of people Jude is talking about. They pretend that mocking the Lord and mocking his heavenly host won't have any consequences. Even fallen angels should not be treated as if we are in judgment over them. We will be one day, but we're not yet, okay? We should have a healthy fear of the spirit world. Christians should not engage in inappropriate speech about the Lord ever. That would be an awful abuse of our minds and our tongues and even, even the very breath in our lungs that God has placed there. In fact, as professing believers, we must not even flippantly use God's name. I'm going to share something with you because I think it, I think it matters. A friend of mine uh, lives across the street. He's Islamic. He told me that basically was saying that Christians aren't as, as good of followers of, of Christ as Muslims are of Allah. And he said, because I hear Christians making jokes about why can't Jesus hold M&Ms because he has holes in his hands, things like that. So this is, this is the terrible... He heard this from a person who claims to be a Christian making jokes about Jesus having holes in his hands. Come on, guys. I'm not saying, I mean, obviously, there was no one in this room, but just think about this. This is what people outside of the church are hearing, and it's, it's ruining our witness. We should not use God's name flippantly. And I want to take it a step further here because, you know, blasphemy is an obvious thing, but because blasphemy is to speak evil of the Lord, I'm going to suggest we don't even speak stupid of the Lord, Okay? Think about this, okay? I'm sure most of us are familiar with the statement, thou shalt not take the Lord, the name of the Lord that God in vain, right? Everybody knows that was the third commandment, right? Um, may I suggest that it's referring to a whole lot more than just saying OMG? <laughs> I mean, think about this, guys. Maybe using the Lord as a hammer to beat down a, a wounded soul, maybe that would count as using his name in vain. Because the Bible's very clear. That a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So when we attack someone with the name of God, aren't we harming that witness? If that person is repentant or, or misusing the name of God to get rich off a TV audience, I mean, doesn't that count? 
you, you go to the big hair network, it seems like there's a lot of people on there that are trying to do that very thing. Certainly, applying God's name to something that he disapproves of would be a violation. Any, any so-called minister or pastor who signs a, a wedding certificate, a wedding license for a same-sex couple is taking God's name and dragging it through the mud. He or she is violating what the Bible says. It should not be done. Should not be done. So, that's true. No minister should ever perform a same-sex wedding. But at the same time, if you have a social media warrior Christian who degrades other people and treats them like garbage just because their eyes haven't been opened to the truth yet or because you disagree about something, listen, that, that's the same, that, that also drags God's name through the mud. Church, let's not be like that. <laughs> okay, last section, this will go really quickly, okay? I know some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, is this going to take for it? No, we're almost done. Jude, Jude is giving us just a little more here on the subject of blasphemy. After talking about how, how freely these dreaming people blaspheme, he says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, uh, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not pronounce, presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But see, he goes on to say, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. By the way, for you guys that are visiting, they're not usually this long. I just want you to know that. This is a long one today. Almost done here, okay? Here's, here's the rundown on this weird story, okay, about Moses' body. Michael and Satan fighting over Moses' body. That is not found anywhere in the Bible, but it is found in pseudepigraphal writings, okay, which are like extra writings. Because Jude mentions it, I have to accept that that is true because it's in the canon, okay? Believe this happened. That doesn't mean the rest of wherever that, that thing was found is true. But, but that particular thing is in the scripture, so it's true. Okay? But apparently the devil wanted to use Moses' body to lead the Israelites astray. And God sent Michael to step in and, and intervene. Okay? But despite the weird nature of that story, the point is even angels don't talk trash. I mean, think about it. Michael didn't get into a battle of wits with Satan, Right? No, he just said the Lord rebuke you, which is apparently enough to drive Satan away. I think it's pretty cool to think even God's own angels rely on the name of the Lord in fighting their battles. Maybe we can learn a little something from that, you know? I mean, what does Scripture say? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. It says the righteous run into it and are safe. From this, uh, these last two verses, we also see that the wicked blaspheme what they don't understand. You know, the ESV says that they're like unreasoning animals, but I like how the King James says it. It says, as brute beasts <laughs> in those things they corrupt themselves. That's a little murky here, but, but my understanding of what Jude wants to communicate is that evil people talk trash about stuff they know nothing about, but they dig a deeper pit by how they respond to what they do understand. Now, some of what they do, they, they have to realize is wicked. They have to. 
because it's got to violate their conscience that God gave them, but, but they, they do it anyway without remorse, without shame, and with the full guilt of every sin they've ever committed and every sin they've ever helped someone else commit, and they still refuse the forgiveness that is offered to them by God's grace through his son Jesus. Friend, what about you? Like Sodom and Gomorrah and the rebellious fallen angels, are you destined for eternal fire? Or do you seek forgiveness? If you've sought that forgiveness, then that's great. But are you still returning to that same old sin like the proverbial dog that keeps returning to its vomit? What's that passage, CJ? Proverbs? That's it, 2611, baby. Thank you. Is that what you do? Do you want to be washed? sanctified, justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God? Because if so, guys, all you got to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, faith, biblical faith, produces more action. It's not just making a mental ascent. Check that box. Oh, yeah, okay, I believe Jesus, blah, blah, blah. No, it is, it is putting your faith, your true faith, in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, he has some demands of you. If you put your faith in Christ, forgiveness is immediate. But the Holy Spirit's work in you, that is a lifelong process. And you must turn your life over to Christ. You must surrender. You've got to turn away from sin. You've got to turn toward him. And today you have that opportunity. You know, the Bible talks about it. It talks about repentance for forgiveness of sin. He says in the chapter before that, that's Acts 3. In Acts 2, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 10, he says, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Guys, let's do this. 